needed. Take your Bibles and find your way to Ecclesiastes chapter 10. That's where we were last time. We made our way through almost, well, maybe a a quarter of that. We're going to finish today, Lord willing. Um, Ecclesiastes chapter 10. I want to say, beloved, that we are faced this morning with the harsh realities of a wicked and godless government. Mm -hmm. A government that operates by the wisdom of folly. Um, Where's the proof of that? You might be wondering, or maybe you're not wondering that. But if you are, uh, one thing is that uh, people in power, or powerful positions within their administration, are... Uh, obviously unqualified and have no idea what they're doing. That's one. They're there because they either are related to someone that uh, put them there or because of their bizarre and insane lifestyles that support an agenda that the administration wants to promote. For another reason, they create a foolish narrative to justify raising taxes, then embezzle that money for their own pleasures and get rich. In this way, they are lazy and idle about the good for our nation, or for the nation rather, and don't address real issues of the people. Furthermore, they find dishonest ways to keep themselves in their positions to self-perpetuate. Still further, they not only deny the God of the Bible, but they hate him and institute policies that profane his holy name. And finally, they have removed the mechanism of checks and balances so that they can practice cutthroat, Machiavellian moves, if you will, on their honest colleagues who have become a threat to them. That, beloved, is the government that the sage describes in Ecclesiastes 10. Oh, did you think I was talking about our government? (laughs) Well, now that you mention it, there are some undeniable and solid commonalities between them, actually in all governments, that are godless and are in bondage to the wisdom of folly. Fair enough. But why use government as, well, the likely context of the outworking of the wisdom of folly? Why not parenting or marriage or education or even the church? Well, my educated guess is because, as you know, the sage is fond of using the epitome of examples, right? So government is a perfect context to show how far and wide the abuse of power can go. Now, in our last study, we covered verses 1 to 4, which singled out the fool who occupied a prominent position in the court and how he carries on. Both this appointment or his appointment, and his performance really were the result of the wisdom of folly. Now, for the rest of the chapter, the sage exposes the entire administration, the entire government, the whole royal cabinet, where he will contrast the wisdom of folly with the wisdom of God or godly wisdom. Now, before we look at the details, all right, I want to rehearse with you again what the sage achieves for us in this chapter, practically speaking. There are three things you may remember. First, he gets into our heads that there does exist a methodology of foolishness, right? An epistemology of irrationalism. A system of thought that doesn't just spout off 
foolishness or falsehoods, but deliberately passes them off as truths. It promotes immorality as virtuous. It wins over the majority with empty and dangerous promises, a methodology to foolishness. This is why we're calling this the wisdom of folly. Number two, or second, the sage gets into our heads that this wisdom of folly is the polar opposite of godly wisdom, exact opposite. And why is that important? Because wisdom of folly is really good at counterfeiting godly wisdom or truth. So the difference between the two are not so apparent to the world. And those of us who know better and reject the wisdom of folly, of course, will be ridiculed and slandered and pegged as racist, sexist, misogynist, and xenophobes, and uncaring and backward when we hold to, the, uh, to godly wisdom. That shouldn't surprise the church. Paul did say that people prefer darkness instead of light. The third and final thing that the sage does is to call us godly, wise people to be careful to maintain our witness before the world so that God might be pleased to use it to open the eyes of the spiritually blind to their folly and to their spiritual condition before him. All right, so those are the three practical outworkings of this chapter. When we Christians live godly wisdom to the world, we back up our talk with our walk, and we can confidently challenge those who, who trust their foolish attempts to control life, their lives, and embrace the work of Christ instead, the cross, which is the epitome of godly wisdom, as we said already at our time around the Lord's table. Now, in summary, then, the three applications here are to expose the foolishness of the world for what it is, to reveal godly wisdom for what it is, and that we might also see those who have trusted in their own foolishness way turn from it and to the living God because of our testimony. Three applications. And I'm going to try and keep these applications before you as we move through the rest of the chapter. Now, I think it's necessary before we do that, again, to review what we said last time. We said the, the first, in the first part of our outline that the wisdom of folly is polar opposite to godly wisdom. Its voice wounds and kills rather than saves and enriches life. We said that came from verse 1. The sage told us that the wisdom of folly speaks foolishness in a very appealing way with scented words that attract in order to promote its agenda that in the end will wound and eventually kill. He also told us that foolish talk is polar opposite of godly wisdom. And the implication is that godly wisdom uses no empty and deceptive speech that endangers the hearer, but rather words that are truth and truth that fits the need of the moment so that the, the one who hears might benefit. The obvious application from this contrast is that those of us who operate by godly wisdom, who are members of the new covenant, we must be godly wise in the way we speak before the unsaved world that God would be pleased to move those who hear us to saving faith. And to do that, 
we need at the very least to put off any foolish or hurtful rhetoric of our own that might come from our lips from time to time and put on in its place a godly rhetoric that saves life and sustains life. I know plenty of Christians who get sucked into the foolish talk kind of context. It's not hard to do. They get sucked in, whether it's at the office or at the job site or at the gym or social events. It's easy to fall into it if you're not intentionally watching out for it. The New Testament has much to say about the way we talk. In 2 Timothy 2.14, Paul says, Remind them, Timothy, of these things and solemnly exhort them in the presence of God not to dispute about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the listeners. These are people who just want to instigate and they wrangle about words. In the second part of our outline, we discovered that foolish rhetoric comes actually from the wicked heart rather than a redeemed one. That was the second part. And this organized foolishness takes the form of destructive language that comes from the fool's heart, just as godly language of the godly wise comes from a redeemed heart. You might remember Jesus said that the mouth speaks out of the overflow of the heart. So we should expect then that our language would be distinctly different than the language of the world. And one application here is that we Christians should be godly and biblical in our language, in the way we communicate, that we might attract the fool to the faith. It's, it challenges us to make sure that make sure that our heart is right, that it has indeed been redeemed, that it loves righteousness, it cultivates love, and it desires to follow Christ all the days of our fleeting life. If your heart is redeemed, well, then you'll be able to follow Christ, you'll be able to apply his wisdom, and you'll not be taken in by falsehood, which is something we can not only promise to any unbeliever who turns from dumb idols to the living God, but it's something we can show them by the, we car- by the way we carry on. Again, our, our testimony, our witness. Now, we got to verse 4 last time, and there we learned that the foolish and unredeemed person produces not only foolish rhetoric, but he also produces foolish behavior. Specifically, behavior that is reactive in contrast to the proactive response of godly wisdom. So the fool himself is reactive, and we would expect him to be since his heart is predisposed to being this way, right? We explained that being reactive, if you remember, is a sign of selfishness. It's a self-preservation kind of move, right? We... It's much like a dog. When you, when you grab its paw tightly, it reacts by snapping at your hand. And that's not an action that is bathed in thoughtful planning on the dog's part. No, it's, it's instinctive. He's that way by nature. It just happens. And as you might expect, the response of the godly wise to situations where he would be on the receiving end of of unfair, even outrageous treatment is not reactive, but proactive. 
which speaks of being in control of the situation as well as in control of his own composure. This is because his his heart's desire is not for self. He doesn't care about himself, about how he might be persecuted or attacked or misrepresented. No, he's interested in pleasing Christ and loving his neighbor, even if he gets hurt doing it. So in such a trying moment, what's, what's in the, godly's, the godly person's heart will come out. And in this case, it is a desire to please Christ that will show in a calm and godly and biblical response. The implied application here in, in this example is that we godly wise must be careful to guard our hearts and to make sure that Christ is the object of our affections at all times so that our response to situations will be pleasing to Christ at all times and also impressive to the foolish unbeliever, whether he's an observer of our actions or on the receiving end of them. Now, we pick up with another side of wisdom this morning, a wisdom of folly, that is, and how it differs from godly wisdom in verses 5 to 15. This is a rather large section. But we could summarize it this way. This is the fourth part of our outline. And that is that, that the wisdom of folly is self-serving. But godly wisdom is gracious. That's the difference. And there's an, impl- an applied application we'll get to in, at the end of that. So let me just develop this. The sage illustrates this truth with a real-life example that we are well familiar with because it happens in our day with great regularity. It's when those in powerful positions pass over qualified applicants for jobs that they give to their relatives or their friends instead. We know this today as nepotism and affirmative action. Maybe Maybe you know what it's like to lose a job to someone who is clearly not qualified, but rather a member of the in-crowd. Happens all the time. The sage uses the king's court as a context for this, and it's government. It's not what you know you see there, it's who you know. And for example, it's a, a right in our country for a newly elected president to choose his own cabinet members. That makes sense. Nothing nefarious about that. But one would hope that he chooses people on the basis of their qualifications and contributions and merits to their particular field of expertise. In other words, the best and the most accomplished. Unless you've had your head in the sand, it's pretty obvious that the current administration uh, did not do that because of its emphasis on transgenderism, on critical race theory, on equity, it has filled key positions in Washington on the basis of skin color and gender, and even so-called non-gender, as we've come to know in some embarrassing situations. This is racism at its best. But it's not a new phenomenon by any means. It certainly happened in the ancient world. Ordinarily, you should know, filling royal cabinet positions with fools would be an outrage in the ancient Near East. But it did happen. And when it happened, it led eventually to social chaos, as it always does in every era. Now, you might recall when Rehoboam, 
succeeded his father Solomon as king in Israel. It was a very troubling time, and he needed wise counsel to rule the people who were very troubled. And Solomon's counselors were there to give Rehoboam counsel. But as 1 Kings 12.8 recounts, the young new king rejected them and chose instead to listen to young fools who were his friends, who actually became his new cabinet, verse says, but he ignored the advice of the elders which they had given him and consulted with the young men who had grown up with him and served him. By choosing his friends, who were unqualified for the job, over seasoned administrative counselors, he reaped terrible consequences. Now, in verses 5 to 15, we see what the wisdom of folly um, uh, achieves. It's it's really self-serving. It's a self-serving methodology that has no consideration for others. This is the wisdom of folly. It's against this that the that godly wisdom, of course, shines. So the sage explains first in verses five to seven that the fool is given a place of prominence by unfair means. Okay, we're going to explain this whole context. There's an evil, he says, I've seen under the sun, like a mistake that proceeds from the ruler. Foolishness is set in many exalted places while the rich sit in humble places. I have seen slaves riding on horses and princes walking like slaves on the land. Hmm. This is an outrageous context. Unqualified people, friends, relatives, fill prominent and powerful positions that obviously contribute to the agenda of this dishonest regime. While the godly wise who are qualified are passed over and have to settle for jobs that uh, they are overqualified for. The sage clearly calls this a mistake of the ruler himself. And it costs him in the end, as it did Rehoboam. I should point out that the reference to rich, opposite fools, are actually, in fact, the wise. The most qualified, you see, uh, at this time would have been those wealthy enough to receive a good education in their fields. That's why the sage calls the rich rather than wise. The two are the same. The sage tells us, second, that the fool who accepts a position of great responsibility in the king's court for dishonest gain doesn't realize the risk that he puts himself in. In verses 8 and 9, the sage uses illustrations that communicate this idea of risk. Notice, one who digs a pit may fall into it, and the serpent may bite one who breaks through a wall, and one who quarries stone may be hurt by them, and one who splits logs may be endangered by them. So the, fool, the fool's bad choice to accept a position of great responsibility will inevitably come back to bite him. And we see furthermore in verse 10 that because there is no substitute for wisdom, uh, what the fool lacks in wisdom, he tries tirelessly to make up with brute strength, only to cause more work for himself. If the axe is dull and he does not sharpen its edge, then he must exert more strength. Wisdom has the advantage of bringing success. The axe is a figure for the fool, 
And the edge of its blade refers to his countenance. The word in Hebrew for edge is face. So to sharpen the edge means to adjust or control his countenance in his job. Because he isn't wise, he cannot control his composure. We already know that. Which becomes evident in his countenance. And maybe he finds the challenges of the job intolerable and he becomes depressed, as Cain uh, did when he was overcome with jealousy. You remember, his countenance had fallen, right? Since the fool lacks the skill set here to meet the challenges of his position, he winds up creating more work for himself in the long run. Godly wisdom, on the other hand, clearly has the advantage and could bring about a successful outcome. Now, because this fool occupies a position that he obtained unfairly, and that far exceeds his competence level, is a risk to him, and he is unable to carry it out well, no matter how much energy he expends, his nerves become frazzled and his downfall is inevitable. Look at verse 11. We see how this comes about. The fool, the fool's, the fool misspeaks to his superiors and incurs their wrath. I love the proverbial and figurative way that the sage puts this. He says, if the serpent bites before being charmed, then there's no benefit to the charmer. The Hebrew phrase for charmer is, uh, it's actually two words, master of the tongue. That's right. And we made the point earlier that foolish rhetoric is oily, scented in such a way as to appeal to the hearer, right? You remember that? But that says more about the hearer than the fool, I want you to know. The hearer himself, a fool, for listening to another fool, doesn't have the good sense to discern what a sound message is because he, like the apostates that Paul talks about in 2 Timothy 4.3, they gravitate to people who will tell them what their ears want to hear, right? So the fool in high places can tell his superiors what they want to hear, even if it's not true, to save their own hide or make himself look good or secure financial backing, whatever the reason. But sooner or later, his lies will produce disastrous consequences, certainly to himself, if not to others. His words may have been pleasing at the moment to his higher-ups, but they're empty, and they will only lead to a bad outcome. So we learn from verses 12 and 13 then that unlike the godly wise whose whose speech gives grace, the fool demonstrates more and more folly the more he speaks, ultimately displaying insanity. Look at verses 12 and 13. Words from the mouth of a wise person are gracious, while the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of his talk is foolishness, and the end of it is evil insanity. Now, the difference between the godly wise and the fool is very stark here, isn't it? The godly wise benefits those who listen. He has the best interest of the hearer in mind. He will give grace to those who hear him in some form or fashion, but not so the fool. Oh no, what he says is absolutely foolish. It cannot benefit anyone in the long term. 
But have you noticed that the fool produces foolish speech that worsens the longer he speaks? This is a progression of foolishness bound up in his communication. According to verse 14, he actually thinks that by many words he can take control of his situation and appear wise. It says, yet the fool multiplies words. No person knows what will happen and who can tell him what will come after him. Now, it might not appear clear to you how the first part of this verse that mentions the the fool's effusive words or his rambling relates to the second part of the verse that talks about not knowing the future. So let me try and explain that. It's not difficult. It's common among those who lack wisdom and need to be convincing to those who know better to yammer. They just yammer on, right? Flap their gums 90 miles an hour. And they think that the more that they say with greater passion, the more convincing they are and will eventually get it right. So they gush. They pour forth scented, oily words, but the words are empty and unsound. Proverbs 18.2, a fool who does, not, who does not delight in understanding, a fool does not delight in understanding, rather, but in revealing his own mind. Now, the fool doesn't know what he's talking about. It's obvious. So he talks incessantly. He's hoping that he will eventually get it right and convince his audience into thinking that he's in control of the situation, in control of life. But in reality, he proves that not only is he unqualified to do that and have control over his own life, but his plans suggest that they are insane. Some of you know that I supervise doctoral students at a seminary level. Part of their requirement is to produce a thesis to defend a biblic, their biblical position on something in their field that will be practical to the body of Christ. And so they write, and write, and write. They often miss the point of, the, of a text. They fail to give a good exposition of the text, which causes, causes me to write and write and write. And what winds up happening is that they devote lots of words and space in their paper with the hope that the longer they write and say, the closer they'll come to getting it right. But many words are no substitute for being precise and correct. Nor do they guarantee that anyone can control the outcome of a situation, which is why the sage says no one can know or tell him what comes after him. No one knows the future. You cannot control anything, no matter how much you speak or how many words you use. Now, the end result of all all his expended energy, trying to make up where he lacks in wisdom, and all his incessant talk that goes nowhere according to verse 15, is that it is a fatiguing exercise in futility that will only wind the fool up more confused. It says the labor of a fool makes him so weary that he does not even know how to go to a city. There comes a point in life, or in the life of such a foolish individual, where he faces the uncomfortable and embarrassing moment 
when he's found out to be a fraud. He doesn't know whether he's coming or going, and it's evident that he has lost his way. What, what are we to gather from this brief case study of the misplaced fool in high positions of government? Well, surely that there is a foolish wisdom that people follow, and it's very self-serving. It cares nothing for people that it's supposed to serve, but rather it takes advantage of them for their own selfish ends. Eventually, the world, which is also foolish and duped by Satan, can still see through a great deal of this, although they don't know where to turn. As Christians, as godly wise, we show them the alternative to the wisdom of their folly. We show them who to turn to from dumb idols. And we do this by the way we live in stark contrast to this whole mess, this whole world system. We direct them with our sane and godly wise advice and behavior that imparts grace and leads them to the only wise God who is able to establish them according to the gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the scriptures that have been made known to all nations, leading to the obedience of faith through Jesus Christ, Paul says. Well, we come finally to the fifth and last part of our outline, which argues that the wisdom of folly is destructive rather than life-sustaining. We find this in verses 16 to 20, Just how destructive is the wisdom of folly? Well, according to verses 16 and 17, a government run by fools will come to a complete ruin while a land that is run by a godly administration will prosper. So says the sage. So says the Holy Spirit. Verse 6 zeroes in or shows us how how the foolish methodology of the fool uses position and power to achieve their hedonistic lifestyle. The sage says, Woe to you, land whose king is a boy and whose princes feast in the morning. The king apparently here in this illustration inherited a throne early in life, and he is not mature enough to keep a reign on his pleasures. He uses his kingdom for his personal entertainment and piggy bank. He's not clear if those, it's not clear rather, if those in his cabinet are young and inexperienced as he is, but it is clear that they too are self-serving and want to become richer, more powerful and untouchable at the taxpayer's expense. And they party it up. The woe pronounced on this nation is that it will not last when it's run by such an administration of fools. Won't. In verse 17, he quickly turns to praise a godly administration that celebrates only that which is worthy to celebrate and only at the right time. No one in this cabinet is going to be drinking before 10 o'clock in the morning, we can assure you that. It knows that there is a time for work and a time for play, and the two don't mix. Blessed are you 
the sage says, land whose king is of nobility and whose princes eat at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. We have examples from scripture of nations whose rulers acted foolishly and it did not go well for them or their kingdoms. In some instances, the kingdoms were wiped out, never to be seen again. Nebuchadnezzar and Herod are two who openly and foolishly defied Yahweh. Do you remember? Defied him directly. Others did so indirectly and uh, by mistreating Israel when she was under their captive rule. And God wiped them out. Consequences in both contexts were disastrous. One keen example is Belshazzar, the son of Nebuchadnezzar, who saw his dad reap the consequences of his high-handed blasphemy. One night, a very celebratory night, when when Belshazzar was drinking and celebrating, it was the night on which he was killed and the kingdom was wrenched from him by King Darius of the Medes and the Persians. The prophet Daniel addressed Belshazzar on this night, shortly before this happened, and he said this to him. You, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew what happened to your father. But you have risen up against the Lord of heaven, the God in whose hand are your life breath and all your ways. You have not glorified. The obvious outcome of foolish officials, too lazy and idle to tend to the problems of a failing economy, they will surely see it collapse on everyone. That's what happened to Belshazzar's kingdom. The sage captures this truth in verse 18 in the form of a proverb. Through extreme laziness, the rafters sag, and through idleness, the house leaks. It's not surprising that a government that operates by the wisdom of folly and embezzles monies designated to address national problems for their own interests, will eventually drive their nation into the ground. It's no surprise at all. Is that what the majority of Americans are concerned about at this present time? I wonder. I think they are. Verse 19 captures the mentality of this foolish administration with a motto, that it announces with a tone of sarcasm. People prepare a meal for enjoyment. Wine makes life joyful. And money is the answer to everything. Anyone or any political party operating by such a motto that happens to control the nation itself is a threat to national security. How ironic is that? And it's only a matter of time before it falls, but not before the nation suffers greatly, as history has shown, and falls altogether and is wiped out by other nations. What makes government like this so disastrous is that they maintain a pl- uh, uh, pl- places for themselves that are above the law, really, so that no one can depose them. In other words, they get rid of the mechanism 
that was put in place to keep a regime from going rogue and that gives and that gave people a voice consequently the nation is helpless to do anything the sage's final words in verse 20 are telling of just how self-destructive the wisdom of folly is furthermore in your bedroom do not curse a king and in your sleeping rooms do not curse a rich person for a birdie a bird of the sky will bring the sound and the winged one will make your word known sorry i almost got in there a modern day proverb you know the little birdie told me it would appear that these foolish officials in the sage's case in his case study i should say turned turned on their colleagues their colleagues who might disagree with their agenda in the case of two competing political parties for example so perhaps both vie for higher positions in the government we don't know for sure but it's obvious that they ignore what proper and honest channels there are there are left to regulate proper relations between them and instead they're given to gossip about each other behind closed doors which is foolish and destructive in the end the consequence of gossiping fools of course aside from others believing their slanderous lies and acting on it is that the gossipers themselves are exposed and certainly in the ancient world face certain death all this intrigue and conspiring for selfish ends is of course not found in a godly wise administration that that was referenced back in verse 17 what is that government anyway well we cannot be sure if the sage had a real one in mind or not but if he did perhaps it was the davidic kingdom or maybe the the kingdom of judah when it was run by a few godly kings we don't know but certainly beloved those of us who who are part of the new covenant cannot help but see a greater contrast with foolish worldly government in the theocratic rule of god himself right the theocratic rule of God himself which we will experience in full someday at the second coming of Christ. And I might mention that with the Christmas season nearly upon us the wonderful prophecy of Isaiah 9 Isaiah says there will be no end to the increase of his government of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and furthermore the zeal of the lord of armies will accomplish this we have argued from chapter 10 that the wisdom of folly is polar opposite to godly wisdom and that it wounds and kills rather than saves and enriches it emanates from a wicked heart rather than a redeemed run it's reactive rather than proactive it's self-serving rather than gracious it's destructive rather than life-sustaining the obvious sane conclusion for anyone should who should be entrenched in a wisdom of folly is this turn from it and embrace godly wisdom 
Godly wisdom is God's way of life, the good life, the life that God gives as a gift, as the sage has put many times in previous chapters already. The way we put it today to people is embrace the gospel. Embrace the work of Christ. The gospel is the epitome of godly wisdom in that it is wisdom and it imparts eternal life and wisdom. But more than than that, there is a call, I think, to us godly wise folk the church, and it's this, maintain your witness that God might use it to open the eyes of the spiritually blind to their foolish ways and their spiritual condition before him. And how do we do that? Well, certainly we proclaim this wisdom from above, this gospel, which is designed to save life and enrich it. But also we are to demonstrate the effect of it in real life. Be proactive in your dealings with the world instead of reactive. Impart grace in your conversations to those who hear you instead of being selfish. Stand for and support a life-sustaining, godly agenda rather than foolish, destructive ones. And be aggressive about it. Since, we, since we're constantly on the receiving end of the wisdom of folly. Apostle Paul, who also faced opposition to godly wisdom from a culture well-versed in folly, exhorts us in Ephesians 5, verses 6 to 11, See that no one deceives you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. As you try to learn what is pleasing to the Lord, do not participate in the useless deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. Those of us who belong to Christ cannot help but expose the wisdom of folly just by living the wisdom of Christ at places of our business in our home, in the gym, at the shopping centers, even at social events. We cannot help but promote and shine forth the godly wisdom of Christ. We should stick out, beloved. We should. And as people notice the difference in us and ask us why why we think and act the way we do, We can then expose the life of folly for what it is, and we have the backing of our lifestyle to sure it up. And then we can go on to outline God's wisdom of the cross. It's foolishness to the world, but it is God's wisdom unto salvation. Father, we thank you for this time together that we could spend part of our Lord's Day in your word, and we pray that the truths there that you have left for us will resonate and rebound in our minds, and that we would call them to, to our mind when we are in situations where we have the, uh, the ability and the opportunity 
to show Christ, to show his wisdom, to show the wisdom of the cross. We pray, O God, that we would not be shy to take opportunities to do this, and that our very lives, by the way we live them, would even would even attract such opportunities for us. And as it does, we pray that we would take them and that we will and that we will show people the wisdom of God, the wisdom of the cross, and that we would follow it up with a sound proclamation of the gospel of the words of eternal life that you may be pleased to bring about faith and repentance for your glory, for your honor, and for the benefit of your church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.